Article 5, Law and Gospel. As the distinction between the law and the gospel is a special brilliant light, which serves to the end that God's word may be rightly divided, and the scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles may be, may be properly explained and understood, we must guard it with a special care, in order that these two doctrines may not be mingled with one another, or a law be made out of the gospel, whereby the merit of Christ is obscured, and troubled consciences are robbed of their comfort, which they otherwise have in the holy gospel, when it is preached genuinely and in its purity, and by which they can support themselves in their most grievous trials against the terrors of the law. Now here likewise there has occurred a dissent among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession. For one, the one side asserted that the, the gospel is properly not only a preaching of grace, but at the same time also a preaching of repentance, which rebukes the greatest sin, namely unbelief. But the other side held and contended that the gospel is not properly a preaching of repentance or of reproof, as that properly belongs to God's law, which reproves all sins and therefore unbelief also, but that the gospel is properly a preaching of the grace and favor of God for Christ's sake, through which the unbelief of the converted, which previously inhered in them, and which the law of God reproved, is pardoned and forgiven. Now when we consider this dissent aright, it has been caused chiefly by this, that the term gospel is not always employed and understood in one and the same sense, but in two ways. In the Holy Scriptures, as also by ancient and modern church teachers. For sometimes it is employed so that there is understood by it the entire doctrine of Christ our Lord, which he proclaimed in his ministry upon earth and commanded to be proclaimed in the New Testament, and hence comprised in it the explanation of the law and the proclamation of the favor and grace of God his heavenly Father, as it is written, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And shortly afterwards, the chief heads are stated, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Thus, when Christ, after his resurrection, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel in all the world, Mark sixteen fifteen, he compressed the sum of this doctrine into a few words when he said, Luke 24, 46 and 47, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. So Paul, too, calls his entire doctrine the gospel, Acts twenty twenty one. But he embraces the sum of this doctrine under the two heads, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this sense, the generalis definitio, that is, the description of the word gospel, when employed in a wide sense and without the proper distinction between the law and the gospel, is correct when it is said that the gospel is a preaching of repentance and the remission of sins. For John, Christ, and the apostles began their preaching with repentance and explained and urged not only the gracious promise of the forgiveness of sins, but also the law of God. Furthermore, the term gospel is employed in another, namely in its proper sense, by which it comprises not the preaching of repentance, but only the preaching of the grace of God, as follows directly afterwards Mark 
where Christ says, repent and believe the gospel. Likewise, the term repentance also is not employed in the Holy Scriptures in one and the same sense. For in some passages of Holy Scripture, it is employed and taken for the entire conversion of man, as Luke 13.5, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And in 15.7, likewise, joy shalt be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. But in this passage, Mark 1.15, as also elsewhere, where repentance and faith in Christ, Acts 20, 21, or repentance and remission of sins, Luke 24, 46-47, are mentioned as distinct, to repent means nothing else than truly to acknowledge sins, to be heartily sorry for them, and to desist from them. This knowledge comes from the law, but it is not sufficient for saving conversion to God if faith in Christ be not added whose merits the comforting preaching of the Holy Gospel offers to all penitent sinners who are terrified by the preaching of the law. For the Gospel proclaims the forgiveness of sins not to coarse and secure hearts, but to the bruised or penitent, Luke 4.18. And lest repentance or the terrors of the law turn into despair, the preaching of the Gospel must be added, that it may be a repentance unto salvation, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For since the mere preaching of the law without Christ either makes presumptuous men who imagine that they can fulfill the law by their outward works, or forces them utterly to despair, Christ takes the law into his hands and explains it spiritually, Matthew 5.21, Romans 7.14, and Romans 1.18, and thus reveals his wrath from heaven upon all sinners and shows how great it is, whereby they are directed to the law and from it first learn to know their sins aright, a knowledge which Moses could never extort from them. For as the Apostle testifies, 2 Corinthians 3.14, Even though Moses is read, yet the veil which he put over his face is never lifted, so that they cannot understand the law spiritually, and how great things it requires of us, and how severely it curses and condemns us, because we cannot observe or fulfill it. Nevertheless, when it shall return to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. 2 Corinthians 3.16 Therefore the Spirit of Christ must not only comfort, but also through the office of the law reprove the world of sin. John 16.8 And thus must do in the New Testament, as the prophet says, Isaiah 28.21, Opus alienum, ut faciat opus proprium. That is, he must do the work of another, reprove, in order that he may afterwards do his own work, which is to comfort and preach of grace. For to this end he was earned and sent to us by Christ, and for this reason, too, he is called the Comforter, as Dr. Luther has explained in his, op- in his exposition of the gospel for the fifth Sunday after Trinity in the following words. Anything that preaches concerning our sins and God's wrath, let it be done how or when it will, That is all a preaching of the law. Again, the gospel is such a preaching as shows and gives nothing else than grace and forgiveness in Christ. Although it is true and right that the apostles and preachers of the gospel, as Christ himself also did, confirm the preaching of the law and begin it with those who do not yet acknowledge their sins, nor are terrified at God's wrath, as he says, John 16, 8, the Holy Ghost will reprove the world of sin because they believe not on me. 
Yea, what more forcible, more terrible declaration and preaching of God's wrath against sin is there than just the suffering and death of Christ his Son? But as long as all this preaches God's wrath and terrifies men, it is not yet the preaching of the gospel, nor Christ's own preaching, but that of Moses and the law against the impenitent. For the gospel and Christ were never ordained and given for the purpose of terrifying and condemning, but of comforting and cheering those who are terrified and timid. And again Christ says, John 16, 8, The Holy Ghost will reprove the world of sin, which cannot be done except through the explanation of the law. So too, the small-called articles say, The New Testament retains and urges the office of the law, which reveals sins and God's wrath. But to this office, it immediately adds the promise of grace through the gospel. And the Apology says, To a true and salutary repentance, the preaching of the law alone is not sufficient, but the gospel should be added thereto. Therefore the two doctrines belong together, and should also be urged by the side of each other, but in a definite order and with a proper distinction. And the antinomians, or assailants of the law, are justly condemned, who abolished the preaching of the law from the church, and wish sins to be reproved, and repentance and sorrow to be taught, not from the law, but from the gospel. But in order that everyone may see that in the descent of which we are treating we conceal nothing, but present the matter to the eyes of the Christian reader plainly and clearly, therefore we shall set forth our meaning. We unanimously believe, teach, and confess that the law is properly a divine doctrine in which the righteous, immutable will of God is revealed, what is to be the quality of man in his nature, thoughts, words, and works, in order that he may be pleasing and acceptable to God, and it threatens its transgressors with God's wrath and temporal and eternal punishments. For as Luther writes against the law-stormers, antinomians, everything that reproves sin is and belongs to the law, whose peculiar office it is to reprove sin and to lead to the knowledge of sins, Romans 3, 7, 7. And as unbelief is the root and wellspring of all reprehensible sins, the law reproves unbelief also. However, this is true likewise that the law with its doctrine is illustrated and explained by the gospel, and nevertheless it remains the peculiar office of the law to reprove sins and teach concerning good works. Thus the law reproves unbelief, namely, when men do not believe the word of God. Now, since the gospel, which alone properly teaches and commands to believe in Christ, is God's word, the Holy Ghost, through the office of the law, also reproves unbelief that men do not believe in Christ, although it is properly the gospel alone which teaches concerning saving faith in Christ. However, now that man has not kept the law of God but transgressed it, his corrupt nature, thoughts, words, and works fighting against it, for which reason he is under God's wrath, death, and all temporal calamities, and the punishment of hellfire, the gospel is properly a doctrine which teaches what man should believe, that he may obtain forgiveness of sins with God, namely, that the Son of God, our Lord Christ, has taken upon himself and borne the curse of the law, has expiated and paid for all our sins, through whom alone we enter into favor with God, obtain forgiveness of sins by faith, are delivered from death and all the punishments of sins, and eternally saved. 
for everything that comforts, that offers the favor and grace of God to transgressors of the law, is and is properly called the gospel, a good and joyful message that God will not punish sins, but forgive them for Christ's sake. Therefore, every penitent sinner ought to believe, that is, place his confidence in the Lord Christ alone, that he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, Romans 4.25, that he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1.30, whose obedience is counted to us for righteousness before God's strict tribunal, so that the law, as above set forth, is a ministration that kills through the letter and preaches condemnation, 2 Corinthians 3, 7. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, Romans 1, 16, that preaches righteousness and gives the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, Galatians 3, 2. As Dr. Luther has urged this distinction with especial diligence in nearly all his writings, and has properly shown that the knowledge of God derived from the gospel is far different from that which is taught and learned from the law, because even the heathen to a certain extent had a knowledge of God from the natural law, although they neither knew him aright nor glorified him aright, Romans 1.20. From the beginning of the world, these two proclamations have been ever and ever inculcated alongside of each other in the Church of God, with a proper distinction. For the descendants of the venerated patriarchs, as also the patriarchs themselves, not only called to mind constantly how in the beginning man had been created righteous and holy by God, and th through the fraud of the serpent had transgressed God's command, had become a sinner, and had corrupted and precipitated himself with all his posterity into death and eternal condemnation, but also encouraged and comforted themselves again by the preaching concerning the seed of the woman, who would bruise the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. Likewise, concerning the seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 22.18. Likewise, concerning David's son, who should restore again the kingdom of Israel and be a light to the heathen. Psalm 110.1, Isaiah 49.6, Luke 2.32, who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, by whose stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53.5. These two doctrines we believe and confess should ever and ever be diligently inculcated in the church of God even to the end of the world. Although with the proper distinction of which we have heard, in order that, through the preaching of the law and its threats in the ministry of the New Testament, the hearts of impenitent men may be terrified and brought to a knowledge of their sins and to repentance, but not in such a way that they lose heart and despair in this process, but that, since the law is a schoolmaster unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24, and thus points and leads us not from Christ, but to Christ, who is the end of the law, Romans 10.4, they be comforted and strengthened again by the preaching of the Holy Gospel concerning Christ our Lord. Namely, that to those who believe the Gospel, God forgives all their sins through Christ, adopts them as children for His sake, and out of pure grace, without any merit on their part, justifies and saves them. However, not in such a way that they may abuse the grace of God and sin hoping for grace, 
as Paul, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, thoroughly and forcibly shows the distinction between the law and the gospel. Now, in order that both doctrines, that of the law and that of the gospel, be not mingled and confounded with one another, and what belongs to the one may not be ascribed to the other, whereby the merit and benefits of Christ are easily obscured, and the gospel is again turned into a doctrine of the law, as has occurred in the papacy, and thus Christians are deprived of the true comfort which they have in the gospel against the terrors of the law, and the door is again opened in the church of God to the papacy. Therefore, the true and proper distinction between the law and the gospel must, with all diligence, be inculcated and preserved, and whatever gives occasion for confusion interlegem et evangelium between the law and the gospel, that is, whereby the two doctrines, law and gospel, may be confounded and mingled into one doctrine, should be diligently prevented. It is therefore dangerous and wrong to convert the gospel, properly so called, as distinguished from the law, into a preaching of repentance or reproof. For otherwise, if understood in a general sense of the entire doctrine, also the Apology says several times that the gospel is a preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Meanwhile, however, the Apology also shows that the gospel is properly the promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification through Christ, but that the law is a doctrine which reproves sins and condemns. Article 6. The Third Use of the Law Since the law of God is useful, one, not only to the end that external discipline and decency are maintained by it against wild, disobedient men, two, likewise that through it men are brought to a knowledge of their sins, three, but also that when they have been born anew by the Spirit of God, converted to the Lord, and thus the veil of Moses has been lifted from them, they live and walk in the law. A dissension has occurred between some few theologians concerning this third and last use of the law. For the one side taught and maintained that the regenerate do not learn the new obedience, or in what good works they ought to walk, from the law, and that this teaching is not to be urged thence, because they have been made free by the Son of God, have become temples of His Spirit, and therefore do freely of themselves what God requires of them, by the prompting and impulse of the Holy Ghost, just as the Son of itself, without any impulse, completes its ordinary course. Over against this, the other side taught, although the truly believing are verily moved by God's Spirit, and thus, according to the inner man, do God's will from a free spirit, yet it is just the Holy Ghost who uses the written law for instruction with them, by which the truly believing also learn to serve God, not according to their own thoughts, but according to his written law and word, which is a sure rule and standard of a godly life and walk, how to order it in accordance with the eternal and immutable will of God. For the explanation and final settlement of this dissent, we unanimously believe, teach, and confess that although the truly believing and truly converted to God and justified Christians are liberated and made free from the curse of the law, Yet they should daily exercise themselves in the law of the Lord, as it is written, Psalm 1 2, 119 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. 
For the law is a mirror in which the will of God and what pleases him are exactly portrayed, and which should therefore be constantly held up to the believers and be diligently urged upon them without ceasing. For although the law is not made for a righteous man, as the Apostle testifies, 1 Timothy 1, nine, but for the unrighteous, yet this is not to be understood in the bare meaning, that the justified are to live without law. For the law of God has been written in their heart, and also to the first man immediately after his creation. A law was given according to which he was to conduct himself. But the meaning of St. Paul is that the law cannot burden with its curse those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, nor must it vex the regenerate with its coercion, because they have pleasure in God's law after the inner man. And indeed, if the believing and elect children of God were completely renewed in this life by the indwelling Spirit, so that in their nature and all its powers they were entirely free from sin, they would need no law, and hence no one to drive them either, but they would do of themselves and altogether voluntarily, without any instruction, admonition, urging, or driving of the law, what they are in duty bound to do according to God's will. Just as the sun, the moon, and all the constellations of heaven have their regular course of themselves, unobstructed, without admonition, urging, driving, force, or compulsion, according to the order of God which God once appointed for them, yea, just as the holy angels render an entirely voluntary obedience." However, believers are not renewed in this life perfectly or completely, completive well consummative, as the ancients say. For although their sin is covered by the perfect obedience of Christ, so that it is not imputed to believers for condemnation, and also the mortification of the old Adam and the renewal in the spirit of their mind is begun through the Holy Ghost, nevertheless the old Adam clings to them still in their nature and all its internal and external powers. Of this the Apostle has written, Romans 7.18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And again, for that which I do not, for, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. Likewise, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Likewise, Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Therefore, because of these lusts of the flesh, the truly believing, elect, and regenerate children of God need in this life not only the daily instruction and admonition, warning and threatening of the law, but also frequently punishments that they may be roused and follow the Spirit of God, as it is written Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And again, 1 Corinthians 9.27, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And again, Hebrews 12.8, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. As Dr. Luther has fully explained this at greater length in the summer part of the church postal on the epistle for the 19th Sunday after Trinity. 
But we must also explain distinctively what the gospel does, produces, and works towards the new obedience of believers, and what is the office of the law in this matter as regards the good works of believers. For the law says indeed that it is God's will and command that we should walk in a new life, but it does not give the power and ability to begin and do it. But the Holy Ghost, who is given and received not through the law, but through the preaching of the gospel, Galatians 3.14, renews the heart. Thereafter the Holy Ghost employs the law so as to teach the regenerate from it, and to point out and show them, in the Ten Commandments, what is the good and acceptable will of God, Romans 12.2. In what good works God hath before ordained that they should walk, Ephesians 2.10. He exhorts them thereto. And when they are idle, negligent, and rebellious in this matter because of the flesh, he reproves them on that account through the law, so that he carries on both offices together. He slays and makes alive. He leads into hell and brings up again. For his office is not only to comfort but also to reprove, as it is written, When the Holy Ghost is come, he will reprove the world, which includes also the old Adam, of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. But sin is everything that is contrary to God's law, and St. Paul says, All scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, etc. And to reprove is the peculiar office of the law. Therefore, as often as believers stumble, they are reproved by the Holy Spirit from the law, and by the same Spirit are raised up and comforted again with the preaching of the Holy Gospel. But in order that, as far as possible, all misunderstanding may be prevented and the distinction between the works of the law and those of the Spirit be properly taught and preserved, it is to be noted with a special diligence that when we speak of good works, which are in accordance with God's law, for otherwise they are not good works, then the word law has only one sense, namely the immutable will of God, according to which men are to conduct themselves in their lives. The difference, however, is in the works, because of the difference in the men who strive to live according to this law and will of God. For as long as man is not regenerate, and therefore conducts himself according to the law, and does the works because they are commanded thus, from fear of punishment or desire for reward, he is still under the law. And his works are called by St. Paul properly works of the law, for they are extorted by the law as those of slaves, And these are saints after the order of Cain, that is, hypocrites. But when man is born anew by the Spirit of God and liberated from the law that is freed from this driver and is led by the Spirit of Christ, he lives according to the immutable will of God comprised in the law. And so far as he is born anew, does everything from a free, cheerful spirit. And these are called not properly works of the law, but works and fruits of the Spirit, or as St. Paul names it, the law of the mind and the law of Christ. For such men are no more under the law but under grace, as St. Paul says, Romans 8.2. But since believers are not completely renewed in this world, but the old Adam clings to them even to the grave, there also remains in them the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. Therefore they delight indeed in God's law according to the inner man, But the law in their members struggles against the law in their mind. Hence, they are never without the law, 
and nevertheless are not under but in the law, and live and walk in the law of the Lord, and yet do nothing from constraint of the law. But as far as the old Adam is concerned, which still clings to them, he must be driven not only with the law, but also with punishments. Nevertheless, he does everything against his will and under coercion, no less than the godless are driven and held into obedience by the threats of the law, 1 Corinthians 9.27, Romans 7.18.19. So too, this doctrine of the law is needful for believers, in order that they may not hit upon a holiness and devotion of their own, and under the pretext of the Spirit of God set up a self-chosen worship, without God's word and command, as it is written, Deuteronomy 12.8.28.32, Ye shall not do, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes, etc., but observe and hear all these words which I command thee. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish therefrom. So too the doctrine of the law, in and with the good works of believers, is necessary for the reason that otherwise man can easily imagine that his work and life are entirely pure and perfect. But the law of God prescribes to believers good works in this way, that it shows and indicates at the same time, as in a mirror, that in this life they are still imperfect and impure in us, so that we must say with the beloved Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified. Thus Paul, when exhorting the regenerate to good works, presents to them expressly the Ten Commandments, Romans 13, 9, and that his good works are imperfect and impure, he recognizes from the law, Romans 7, 7, and David declares, Psalm 19:32, We am mandatorum tuorum concurri. I will run the way of thy commandments, but enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Psalm 143, 2. But how and why the good works of believers although in this life they are imperfect and impure because of sin in the flesh, are nevertheless acceptable and well-pleasing to God, is not taught by the law, which requires an altogether perfect, pure obedience, if it is to please God. But the gospel teaches that our spiritual offerings are acceptable to God through faith for Christ's sake, 1 Peter 2.5, Hebrews 11.4. In this way, Christians are not under the law, but under grace because by faith in Christ the persons are freed from the curse and condemnation of the law, and because their good works, although they are still imperfect and impure, are acceptable to God through Christ. Moreover, because so far as they have been born anew according to the inner man, they do what is pleasing to God, not by coercion of the law, but by the renewing of the Holy Ghost, voluntarily and spontaneously from their hearts, However, they maintain, nevertheless, a constant struggle against the old Adam. For the old Adam, as an intractable, refractory ass, is still a part of them, which must be coerced to the obedience of Christ, not only by the teaching, admonition, force, and threatening of the law, but also oftentimes by the club of punishments and troubles, until the body of sin is entirely put off, and man is perfectly renewed in the resurrection, when he will need neither the preaching of the law nor its threatenings and punishments, as also the gospel any longer, for these belong to this mortal and imperfect life. But as they will behold God face to face, so they will, through the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, do the will of God with unmingled joy, voluntarily, 
unconstrained, without any hindrance, with entire purity and perfection, and will rejoice in it eternally. Accordingly, we reject and condemn as an error pernicious and detrimental to Christian discipline, as also to true godliness, the teaching that the law, in the above-mentioned way and degree, should not be urged upon Christians and the true believers, but only upon the unbelieving, unchristians, and impenitent.